Hi everyone, this is Ellen Shute, and I want to welcome you back to the What Drives You podcast. I haven't been in this seat in a while as I had lower back surgery this spring and I was out of commission. Uh, thank goodness everything went beautifully and I no longer have leg pain and I'm back to being able to do my exercise and it is really thrilling and wonderful and I'm so grateful that I took care of myself in the way that I did and um, helped my pain to go away. So here we are back at my favorite season, which is fall. Why do I love the fall? Two big reasons why I love the fall. One is University of Michigan football. Go blue. Um, Michigan football is is a real thing for me in my life. I I love the University of Michigan. I actually went to the um, opposition school for my undergraduate degree, but went to Michigan for grad school and then ended up teaching there for over 20 years in the School of Social Work. And I have um, my two daughters went to Michigan and I currently have two granddaughters at Michigan. So it's a big thing for us, the University of Michigan. And I'm a football lover. And so this is really a very, very special season. We do a lot for it. And it's a, a wonderful, wonderful time for us. Each year, this wonderful time intersects with the other reason I love fall, which is the Jewish high holidays. And it it ends up being between the tailgates for the football games and the holiday dinners, it ends up being a lot of cooking and a lot of preparation, but most importantly, a lot of gathering with family and friends and community. And for those three things, I'm I'm grateful that both of these things happen now and they intersect. Our holiday season is both a joyous one and a time for reflection and a time for repentance. And it is during this time of year that we traditionally ask God to forgive our sins, our behaviors over the last year that we weren't proud of. We ask God for forgiveness for those things. And we also ask God at this time of year to inscribe each of us into the book of life for the coming year. It's an it's an interesting thing um, that at this time of year we are reminded that our lives are limited and we are reminded to consider that we should be grateful for what we have and also that there's a lot of things that we don't control. And um, that's where I personally turn to a higher power and other people turn to other things, but there's a lot that we don't control. The season for us begins with a service that is dedicated to forgiveness. It 
It helps us to get into the mood to be grateful for the Jewish New Year and also to apologize to our friends and family who we have may have intentionally or not intentionally hurt in the last year, and also to ask God to help us with our challenges and to forgive us for behaviors that have happened during the past year that we're we're not proud of, that we would like to change. For the first time ever in my life, I actually participated in our community service this last weekend for the beginning of the high holiday season. And the theme of that service is forgiveness. And I spoke on the topic of self-forgiveness because in my mind, unless we can truly forgive ourselves for our mistakes, for our challenges, unless we can change our understanding of ourselves as, as whole people that have goods and bads, it's really sort of kind of phony to think that God would forgive us if, if we can't own these things. So I believe that self-forgiveness is a really good way to start the new year. And I'm going to talk to you today about that subject as I did at my synagogue over the weekend. And I hope you find it meaningful. And if you are in a season of forgiveness, that perhaps this will help you to be more in that place and have it be a more fulfilling experience for you. So each year we ask God for forgiveness, but do we really? And and what I mean by that is we have a prayer book that has many prayers in it that ask for forgiveness, and the prayers ask for forgiveness for very, very specific behaviors, obvious things that people do wrong, hurting others in various different ways, um, a negative intention toward things, and while we say these prayers as a community together, oftentimes I feel that that prayer that's written on that page isn't really touching my own places that I feel are a challenge to me or where I really would like help and assistance and forgiveness. So I believe we all truly deserved to see ourselves. Now, you may wonder why I use the word deserve here, and I'm going to explain to you why I use the word deserve. In my experience, and most of you know, I, I sit and talk to people every day. It's what I do, and I hear their innermost thoughts and wishes and, and sit with them while they have their deepest feelings. And my experience is that many of us, if not all of us, have a part of ourselves that is focused on negatives. For those of you that have heard me before, you know that I talk a lot about negative thoughts and um, 
And I'm referring to those thoughts, but I'm also referring to a deeper sense of ourselves that we may have that we are not good enough, that we are, people talk to me all the time about feeling like they're they're missing something, that other people have something that they don't have, some attribute. They're not funny enough. They're not um, all kinds of things. And I, I like to help people to come to understand this self-loathing process as just a very, very small part of us. And I can tell you in a blanket statement, most of what we loathe about ourselves simply isn't true. Now you may say, why do you say that? You don't even know who I am. Well, I know who you are. I know you're a human and I know humans. And the one thing I've learned over my 30-some years of working with humans is just incredibly similar we are in terms of how we think, in terms of how we see ourselves, in terms of how we see others. So when we are walking around with our self-loathing thoughts, we often tend to hide ourselves because we're afraid we don't want someone else to see this bad part. We put on a happy face, we put on a smile, we put on a mask, and we act as we think we should when we're in public, but we don't want anybody to know what's really deep inside. And that affects our lives in such deep ways when we don't want people to fully see us. It means that we enter into what could be intimate relationships, and I mean emotionally intimate, as as, um, we hold ourselves back in those relationships. We don't want all of ourselves to show. We don't want to be vulnerable. Because if we were vulnerable, it would show that we're hurting or that we're needy or that we're disappointed in ourselves. All that is part of vulnerability. And if we feel like we're hurting and needy and disappointing, and that is because of who we fully are as a human we can understand how some people just don't want that to show. Other ways that we hide ourselves are by avoiding things that may feel uncomfortable to us and also by avoiding emotions at any cost. So when when I think about these things, my thoughts immediately go to my mother And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about my mother. For those of you that have read my book, um, you've you've read about my mother and about my childhood. So I'm, I'm not saying anything here that isn't public. My mother grew up in an extremely negative, judgmental home as as an only child like me, her daughter. Uh, She really got the brunt of her parents. Um, negativity 
and um, and she developed a tremendous sense that she was always a disappointment. She was never good enough. And so in her adult life, she decided she was going to be perfect. My mother was a stunningly beautiful, looked a lot like Elizabeth Taylor, beautiful woman, um, a, a slender person, extremely sophisticated, well-spoken, brilliantly smart. She went to Carnegie Mellon University in the 1940s as a woman, majored in design, and then went to work for the U.S. Army at Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Baltimore, helping them design things for the war. She was incredibly talented in so many ways, well-read, well-spoken, extremely cultured, and beautiful. And yet, to her, she was never good enough. So for her, her perfection meant that she lived her entire life with what I believe is an eating disorder in order to remain extremely thin, which was also very appealing to my father. She was perfect in how she looked at all times. I always say, it, it sounds like a joke, but it's not. I never, ever saw my mother in a bathrobe in like a lounging outfit. My mother was up, dressed and made up with full makeup before anyone ever saw her and left it on until there was no possibility that anyone was going to see her again that day. She, she hid behind this um, persona that she presented that was perfect. Her hair was always perfect. Her makeup was perfect. Her clothing was very understated, but perfect. After she died, and I, I really had an opportunity to go into her closet, not that I was ever kept out of it, but I, I just didn't go in there like I had to once she had died, and saw how many things she had, how many items of clothing and shoes and all of this in an attempt for every day that she should look perfect. And she did. And she carried it off. The problem for me was that I believe that she also wanted me to be perfect. And her version of perfect for me was very different than the life that I would have naturally chosen. My parents were always very, very focused on looks, on thinness, and as being someone who for my whole life has struggled with my weight, I certainly never fit into what they wanted. And it left me feeling like I wasn't good enough, like I didn't have what it took to be a successful person. There was no focus in my family on talents I might have or um, 
insight or thoughts or thinking or anything else about my life, only my body size. It was really sad. The really saddest part about that whole thing is that I never really knew my mother's true authentic self because she was so busy hiding it, so busy hiding it. And I feel so sad that I missed out on knowing her. I wonder who she would have been if she just could have been, just existed, just not had to conform to her very rigid shoulds that governed her life in every way. I'm sad about that, and I'm mostly sad about that for her because I don't really think she ever in her life got to truly appreciate who her daughter was. And she had a lot to do with who I am, very much to do with who I am. I'm so like her in so many ways. She taught me so many valuable things for my life. It's really sad. My mother tried never to express emotion. I saw her cry one time in my life when she must have been at that point in her 60s, I would say. But other than that, I never, ever, ever saw her have any emotion. And part of her no emotion was also part of this persona that she had to put on to leave the house, to go anywhere, to do anything. Now, As much as she looked beautiful all the time, what happened over her lifetime is that it got harder and harder and harder for her her to have to dress up and go anywhere and not be authentically her. Now, she didn't think like that. She just thought, no, I really don't want to go. And for years at the end of her life, much of her time was spent on her bed, reading a book, doing some kind of project by herself, by herself. She used to go to theater. She used to go to movies. She used to go to concerts. And toward the end of her life, she couldn't do any of that because she had held in her emotion for so long. And it became such a habit that I think those things actually felt dangerous to her hearing music, live music, watching a a stage play, those things bring up emotion for us. That's why we go. So she became avoidant. And it was really sad to watch. She would say that she didn't feel well, or she had a physical thing or this or that. But really, she was just retreating into herself. It's really sad. It's really sad when people can't acknowledge fully who they are and find some state of acceptance around that. Some people hide who they are by having to be right all the time. And I feel it's important to talk about those people as well. Anyone who has to be right is someone who is afraid to look deeper at themselves. They have to be right with their partners. They have to be right with their children. They don't ever say, hmm, that's interesting, or hmm, I never thought about it like that, or what's your opinion? They know what's right. 
They know it's right for everyone else. That's just a different way of hiding our authentic self, not knowing ourselves, not presenting our authentic self. In terms of people who need to be right, I I once had a very valued teacher who used to say, well, you can be right or you can be married. (laughs) And for any of you who are married, you know what that means. Because if you have to be right all the time in a marriage, it's going to be a really painful experience (laughs) because that just isn't true for anybody. So until we can see our true authentic selves, we really can't ask for forgiveness. Because first, we have to know inside of us what we would like people to forgive. That simple. So I'd like to tell you about my true authentic self. Now, I view our authentic selves as a big mosaic. Imagine a picture of you done in a life-size version of mosaic tiles, small little tiles of many, many, many different colors. And all of us are a mosaic. And all of us have parts of that mosaic that are dark, (laughs) that are yucky, that are creepy looking. All of us do because we're humans. And so I'm going to tell you about the mosaic that is me. First and foremost, I am a worrier. There was no way of growing up in my household and not learning to worry not learning to worry that if I left my house and walked next door to be with my friend, I had to call home when I got there. That's 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 what a worrier does, okay? How I took it on is that I know that things can be good, but when things are good, I get anxious inside of my body. And I never really understood why that was. Really good times are oftentimes very, very anxiety provoking for me. But I thought about it a lot. And I came to understand that why I'm anxious is because on some level, I'm not sure I deserve this good. And so then maybe something bad's going to happen. So I worry because I'm not sure that. I that something bad isn't going to happen in my life, that the other shoe isn't going to drop. But the other side of that coin is that I am an optimist. I really rarely give up hope. I almost never give up hope that someone can change something that they really want to change. And so I can be a worrier and worry about bad things and also be a cheerleader, be optimistic, be hopeful, know that things can work out. It's what I tell people all the time. It's going to work out. And you know how we know that? Because you have made everything in your life up to this point work out. And I know that about me too. It doesn't mean that bad things might not happen. But I do know they'll work out. So those are both sides of the coin around that. I can be judgy. I, I, can, I can look at someone and make a judgment about them. 
And I also have very deep compassion for others. When I move out of my judgy to my place that I call, hmm, what's that about? I always think to myself, you know, if I had walked every step in that person's life with them, I would totally understand why they're doing what they're doing right now. That is compassion. And I am so grateful for the compassion I have. I first had to get it for myself, and then I was able to have it for others as well. I can jump to the wrong conclusion, and I have really deep insight into why people do what they do. Both sides are there. I can be easily hurt, and I have tremendous resilience. If you were married to me, you would see how easily I could be hurt because, boy, there's just a little tiny tone in your voice that has nothing to do with me, that has everything to do with you being tired or you're being frustrated or you having something else going on in your life. But when I hear that tone, I I completely shut down and I and I back up. I get hurt. I distance. And I'm also resilient. I do come back. I am able to look at it and think, wow, I got hurt there. And that's what I learned to do when I get hurt. But I'm okay. I'm back. We're good. (laughs) I'm grateful for that. My true authentic self is all of these things. All of these qualities are part of my mosaic. And I like to think of my mosaic as having many different parts and many different colors, some of which are soft and warm, and some of which are fiery and flashy, and and some of which are dark, dark. And I also like to think of the dark pieces in my mosaic as almost being veins that have spread through and actually hold all the other colors together. Maybe you could think of it like that too. The only thing I have control over of all of that is about how much time I want to allow myself to spend in my negative thoughts and let those thoughts drive my actions. I can be intentional about that. So I ask God to help me to live in my strengths and to forgive my negative actions. So how do we see our full selves? How do you see your full self? The first thing we have to do is quiet the negative voices in our heads. Now, for those of you that have read my book or heard my other podcasts, you know that I use this term, the hamster wheel that something happens to us in our life and we climb up in our brains into this hamster wheel and the looping thoughts begin, okay? For some of us, those negative looping thoughts are about other people. What's wrong with them? Why are they doing that? I explained it five times. Why is he still doing it that way? I don't understand. I, I I think so often what I think just to my, about my husband, and I love and adore my husband, but 
I'll tell him something. He says, really? You didn't tell me that. Yes, I did tell you that. You were not listening to me. Those are the kinds of thoughts. I'm not able at those times to have compassion for him because I'm busy focusing on his negatives as I see them. Other some For some people, the thoughts are only about other people. Those are the ones that have a really hard time looking at themselves. They think other people are mean, dumb, wrong, inconsiderate. Whatever is on their list, they, they only feel those things for other people. I believe that those people haven't yet gotten the strength to look at themselves. For other people, like me, the voices are primarily about ourselves. And my negative voices say to me, you don't look good. You're wearing the wrong thing. What's wrong with you? How are you going? Everybody else there is going to be dressed in this, and you're going to be dressed in that, and you're not going to fit in. Not going to fit in. Not fitting in is a huge, huge thing for me. And I really just came to understand that a while ago. My negative voices say to me, you can't do that. (laughs) You can't even try that. Why would you do that? That's just ridiculous. You'll fail at it. Mostly my negative voices have the word should in them. You should do it this way. You should do it that way. You haven't done it enough. It should be like this. It should be better. Your table isn't pretty enough. You don't have enough food. You need to get more. You need to work harder. You need to do more. You have to try to strive for enough. My whole life has been striving to be enough. Skinny enough, pretty enough, rich enough, successful enough, smart enough. Everybody can fill in the blank. What do you feel like you're not blank enough? What would you fill the blank with? So the hamster wheel. I'm back to the old hamster wheel and talking about it again. I want to tell you about a story that happened to me recently that is just the personification of the hamster wheel. One of my very, very dear friends and colleagues who I worked with for many years when I worked um, at an organization passed away. She was 61 years old. She had cancer and she passed away. And I had not actually been with her for a number of years, five years maybe, but we certainly kept in touch. And I had heard that she was ill And I texted her a few times, and then I heard that she was actually getting better. And then the next thing I heard was that she had passed away. So I was in the car driving to her funeral. And I'm in the car. It's a very, very sad thing. (laughs) And I'm obsessing about what I'm wearing to this funeral. Why'd you pick this? Why are you wearing that? Why didn't you wear this? You sh- those shoes are wrong. And and on and on and on in my in my brain. I it it it, it was just obsessional. And at some point, 
God gave me the grace to just take a deep breath. And I stopped and I just said to myself, Ellen, you're dressed perfectly fine. You're going to a funeral. Just take a breath. And I did. I also came to understand later that day that very often when we climb into those hamster wheels, it's because there's some deeper thing going on inside of us, a deeper feeling that we don't really want to pay attention to. And I think I had two really deep feelings that day. One was sadness and one was fear. This was a person just like me, younger than me, who's gone now. Like it so reminds us how fragile life is and that we never know when that day is going to come, when we're going to get a diagnosis. And that's hard to think about. And some of us think about it by saying, well, I, 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 I get all my... I go for a physical every year. I have this, 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 but we all know that we don't we we don't control it. And so when we're face to face with a situation like this, it's very scary. It's extremely scary. And I was so sad because this person was truly an angel on this earth. She worked with children in schools and literally changed thousands and thousands of lives by being someone that believed in little children and helped them believe in themselves. And I thought to myself, it is so sad that she's gone. It is just so sad. And I really couldn't face those things on my ride there. I just had to perseverate. Somehow that was easier and calmed my body. So I want to ask you a question. What if everything in your life is exactly as it is supposed to be right now? Including you. What if there weren't shoulds around your life? Who would you be? What would you do? I've always lived this very restricted food life <laughs> in order to try to manage my weight that is just many times unmanageable. And my eating has never, has always been completely governed by shoulds. And most of those shoulds, and I'm sure many of you can identify with this, were either that I was good or I was bad. It was never that I was eating good things or eating bad things. No, it was a full-on characteristic of me. I was good or I was bad. And that's often what happens with the shoulds. So when I ask you, who would you be and what would you do? What I've come to really understand, even though it's really hard for me to follow, is that if there were no shoulds, and we were totally left to what our bodies truly want and need while keeping in mind our values, what we want for ourselves in the long run, we would really just settle down and be us, be 
authentically us. Who is that person that you might envision? What would you really value? What would you want to be your legacy in this world? When I think about my friend, wow, she left a legacy. Even though I'm so sad she's not still doing it, the legacy that she left is an inspiration to thousands of people who she influenced. That's that's pretty good. So if things are exactly as they're supposed to be, what about improving ourselves? Isn't that important? Because most of us are all about improving ourselves and we should improve ourselves. And I want to say, yes, the answer is yes. Improving ourselves is important. But we don't do that by listening to our negative voices. We do that by coming out of our hamster wheels and thinking from a different part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. This part of our brain knows that we are smart and resourceful and considers things rather than judging them. When we use this part of our brain, we say things like, hmm, interesting. I wonder. Imagine sitting down at the table and thinking, this is interesting what's in front of me. What part of this would I really like? What part of this is so-so? And what's happening in my body as I'm eating? We wonder. We wonder. We consider things rather than drawing quick conclusions. We imagine things from others' perspectives as well as our own. When we are in our prefrontal cortex, we use these um, attributes, seven C's, I call them, letter C, calmness. We are calm. We are curious. We have clarity. We have compassion. We have confidence. We have courage. We have creativity. And most importantly, and what we can get from these things is that we are connected. We're connected to ourselves. We're connected to other people. We're connected to the community. We're connected to the universe from that place. I'd like for you all, if you're able to at this moment, to do a little few second exercise with me. If you can, I'd like you to close your eyes. And if you can't close your eyes because you're driving, don't close your eyes. But I'd like those who can to close their eyes and I'd like you to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And now I'd like you to look around where you are right now in this minute. And I'm going to ask you, is there any danger in this minute? Now, most people, I've done this with terminally ill people, most people say, no, there is no danger in this minute. And I say, and are you safe? And they say, yes. And so the key to getting out of our hamster wheels 
is to come to remember that in this moment, we are safe, that we can access this moment whenever we think of it, and that there is no danger and I don't need to worry about anything right now. Now, in the next moment, something may present a danger, but that's okay. Your brain is ready for danger whenever it happens, but your brain doesn't need to be in danger when it really is safe. So accept yourself. Think about that mosaic. Think about what colors the tiles are in there. You are okay. You are worthy of forgiveness for your honest challengers. And the reason why is not because you're so wonderful. It's just because you're human. And all humans are worthy of forgiveness for their honest challenges. When we truly see ourselves, we are more likely to truly see others too. And life becomes much more about grateful and less about right or wrong. For all those of here who are in long-term relationships, you have likely come to a place of acceptance of the other person, including their challenges. You know their, their stuff. We all have our stuff. It's not because we're bad. It's not because we're not good enough. It's only because we're human. Other people hurt us only because they're human. When we can truly understand that people's strengths outweigh their challenges, we can be honest with our higher power and ask the same from that power. Please recognize my strengths and forgive and help me with my challenges. I want to wish a happy and healthy new year to my Jewish listeners. And I hope that you have a, um, a really meaningful holiday season. I hope that it's both joyous and repentant and that you can fully participate in it from all of you. To my listeners, welcome back. Thank you for listening again. I'm still encouraging people to buy my book. I'm in a process now of doing lots of podcasts all over the country. So my book is out there and it's selling and it's still, in my opinion, just a really valuable thing for people in their lives. I am working on a sequel now and I'll certainly keep you updated on that. Thanks again. Talk to you next time.